0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you very much, Bruce, for that introduction and for your continued support of the program. And good evening, everyone. I'm very excited to be here today. My name is Sarah Fryer. I am a senior technology reporter at Bloomberg. Like Bruce mentioned, I am the author of No Filter, the Inside Story of Instagram, but now I'm pleased to be back at the club uh, to discuss uh, and to serve as moderator for this program with my colleague from Bloomberg News, Brad Stone. Uh, we are here to discuss his great new book, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Um, his This is his second book about Amazon, his first gave an in-depth look at how Amazon uh built this uh, the everything store um it gave one of the first in-depth b- looks at amazon and this new book does more of the same as it grapples with one of the most significant business stories of our time um this last decade of amazon and i can't think of a more important company just to discuss especially as bruce noted, we're emerging from the pandemic when amazon has become ever present in our lives i am very excited for this discussion, but a note of housekeeping, if you want to ask a question, and we hope that you want to ask a question, um, we ask that you do so via the YouTube chat feature. Questions asked there will be submitted to me, and then I will be able to ask them in the program. So let's jump in. Brad, I I just want to start by saying this is This is such a different book than the book that you wrote with everything store the everything store was was this amazing almost underdog story of Amazon proving everybody wrong and really rising to build uh, this vast e commerce business and When you open the chapters of this book, you are looking at everything from the newspaper business to the movie business to space to uh, of course e commerce still features heavily. Tell us a little bit about what's different about Amazon Unbound, which is a perfect title to show just how vast this company has become in so many different directions.
1: Well, thank you, Sarah, and it's great to be here. I I think you put your finger on it. Uh, The Everything Store was an origin story. It's one of the iconic stories of the internet age. Jeff Bezos leaving Wall Street at 30 years old, driving across the country, starting an online bookseller, um, rising through the dot-com boom, almost crashing and going out of business during the bust, and then reviving the business. Amazon Unbound is about a big company becoming massive, about worming its way into every aspect of our lives. Um, it's a story about transformation. So, a one hundred billion dollar company becoming a one point six trillion dollar company, and Bezos—you know, this geeky internet technologist—you know, who was, you know, vibing about the details of the Fire Phone when he announced it on stage. You know, becoming a master of the universe, right? Someone who is in the tabloid newspapers, who's battling with the president of the United States, Donald Trump, over his ownership of the Washington Post, who's rivaling Elon Musk to try to bring people to space. And who ultimately is actually getting bigger and bigger and moving away from Amazon to an extent because he's retiring as CEO later this year. So in some respects, I think this is actually the more interesting story, the story of transformation, of a, a company starting to dominate our economic reality, and then the, really, the very real and worrisome questions about what constitutes anti-competitive conduct and when does a company get too powerful that we need to start asking some really tough questions.
0: Well, I'm glad you, you mentioned anti-competitive conduct, because we did see in the news today that Washington, D.C. sued Amazon for anti-competitive behavior, actually for price fixing. Um, you and I were talking earlier about Amazon and in competition. And the thing that's really striking about this book is they start out as the, sort of the uh, the unexpected entrant in so many markets and go on to dominate them. And so when you think about Amazon from a competitive perspective, this giant, I think you said $1.6 trillion uh, in value company, what is their competitive position? Who do they compete with? Uh, Are are they beyond competition?
1: No, it's actually the really critical question because it's not a classic monopoly in the way we, that we think about it. You know, Microsoft in the nineties had 95% operating a market share in the operating system market. And, you know, when it, it tried to extend that dominance into, into browsers, you know, it got, it got hit by the department of justice. Amazon competes in some very big markets, you know, retail, it's probably you know ten to fifteen percent of all of retail in North America, maybe even less. E-commerce, even it's about fifty percent. Um, you know, you look at cloud computing, and it's got really big, even larger competition in terms of Microsoft. You know, the the probably second player in the cloud computing market, and then Google. You know, which is formidable and just a slightly smaller company by market cap. So it's not easy to really pinpoint where. Amazon has monopoly power but it certainly is a dominant e-commerce player and one of the things that the uh, that the uh, AG in Washington DC was accusing Amazon today is basically and it's this is going to take a bit of background requiring sellers you know not to sell their products elsewhere at a lower price than they sell on Amazon 4. And what uh, Carl Racine the AG of of Washington DC was is arguing is that that's effectively requiring sellers to charge higher prices elsewhere to give Amazon this so-called most favored nation status. He's alleging that's illegal. It's going to be an interesting and kind of tough case to prove because a lot of Retailers do that. Walmart obviously doesn't want to see a brand selling something for cheaper elsewhere than they sell it uh, at in a Walmart store or on Walmart's website. So it'll be it'll be interesting, but certainly Amazon's size and market power is is bringing a lot of scrutiny to the company.
0: Now you said that that the Everything Store was an origin story, and this is more about the the dominance. But as you go through the chapters of Amazon Unbound. It is kind of an origin story in all these different markets the the origin of Amazon Alexa, the origin of Bezos' interest in the Washington post, the origin of of expansion into into Mexico and india um the origin of his interest in space I mean, there are all of these different directions that amazon goes um Can you explain oh, what is the strategy here i mean this what kind of company is this now? This is not this is not a place to buy books online anymore. What is Amazon today? How should we think about it?
1: Right. In fact, when you describe it that way, the original business model almost seems quaint, <laughs> right? That they right. were it was and and even, you know, the story that I tell in the first book about the Kindle um and, and changing the book business in that battle, it, it seems almost antiquated, right? I mean they obviously that happens Amazon's like a huge in
0: every chapter in this book that right, something the size and power of, of a Kindle Um, just transforming every new industry.
1: Right. And so what you're kind of describing here is Bezos's philosophy, his orientation. You know, first of all, I think there's an intellectual philosophy here that um, there are no annuities in retail or technology. You cannot rest on your laurels. You know, the second you stop innovating, someone else will come along and eat your lunch. But then it's also kind of just his character. He's incredibly ambitious. He is empire building. You know, he is taking... All along, Amazon's winnings in book selling and retail and cloud computing and reinvesting them. And so the first chapter of the book is the Alexa story. And basically, Bezos is looking at Amazon's advantage in cloud computing. And in in sensing that uh, voice recognition is about to get good enough, and he sends an email to his colleague saying, we should build a $20 computer whose brains are in the cloud that's controllable by your voice. And that is the email that sends the ants scurrying, so to speak, uh, inside Amazon to get them to start working on this project that will become alexa and he doesn't just have the idea but he has the first drawing on the whiteboard which i have in the book and he also meets with this team twice a week for months and years and he 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 authorizes the investment the massive investment and the data collection efforts that require uh, alexa to become real and so this is the story it's like a story of metamorphosis you know amazon remaking itself every year uh, because Bezos believes that if it stands still, it's going to get overtaken. And of course, he's very competitive also. And he's viewing Google in his rearview mirror and Microsoft. And he, you know, he's he's on a mission to create one of the biggest companies of the world.
0: I mean, you use words like winning, like innovating. Um, but is this an admirable man? Is this a, a happy story? I, I mean, as I was reading this book, it it seemed that there there were pockets of it where, where I was simultaneously inspired and terrified by Bezos and, and what he had decided to do or what he had decided to ignore in the name of pursuit of that dominance. Um, is, this, is this a heroic story or is this a, a critique?
1: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punt on your question and I'm going to say it's a, <laughs> co- it's a complex story. Right. There are. And and look, I don't see it as, um, you know, one or the other. It's it's both. And I I admire and I'm jealous of the of the critics or the hagiographers that are able to see it in that way. Um, You know, Amazon does some great things. And look, I'll I'll say right off the bat, I'm a prime member. I'm an echo owner. Um, You know, we watch the TV shows and movies. Um, We probably use a lot of services that use AWS. Right. Bezos, you know, personally ushered a lot of that into 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 the world and his, you know, impatience and, you know, big thinking and combination of inspiration and intimidation is what made all that possible, you know, for the company to go and create these things at the same time that, you know, the book really paints, I think, a picture of a of an Internet company that's building systems in large part fueled by competitive concerns and this this ambition to get big and dominate and only later coming back and contending with the very real consequences. So for example, you know, we all know here in the Bay Area that there are now Amazon vans driving our streets dropping off packages and Amazon trucks on the high, on you know route 80 up to Tahoe. Um, Amazon in the last five years has really sprouted a whole transportation division. Uh we can get into the reasons why. They didn't want to rely on UPS or the National Post Office anymore, but in a very internet company like way, and Sarah, this was the story you told uh in, in your book about Instagram, you know, they built a huge system and only later came back to really consider the consequences, making sure everyone was safe, um, you know, putting some restrictions on the on the kind of contract drivers yeah. that they hire.
0: Uh, tell us about eighty-four-year-old Telestara Escamilla, who whose story is told in your book.
1: Right. Yeah. This was uh, a this that's was a just, grandmother. That's just
0: one one instance.
1: Right. So a, a little bit of background: As Amazon goes to hire all these drivers to add a last-mile transportation division. You know, in a very internet company-like way, they don't want to employ these drivers. Um, that would create all sorts of liability and potential open the door to the Teamsters union. So they're going to hire contract drivers, sort of like Uber drivers, and also co- third-party companies, which they call DSPs, uh, distribution service partners, who will then hire the drivers. And you know, this was a this was a grandmother in in Chicago who was killed by an, an Amazon driver. And by the way, these drivers are in Amazon vans. They're Wearing Amazon uniforms, and what Amazon will say in these cases is well they didn 't employ these people and they they take safety very seriously um, you know it's it 's their number one value, et cetera you know, but when I dug into that case, you know I found actually that Amazon had settled it you know for for i think it was f- uh, fourteen, 14 million. million yeah, for fourteen million dollars so look i mean there there was obviously a negotiated legal outcome there. But we can assume that the fact pattern wasn't favorable, you know, that this is a company that prioritizes speed, you know, getting, you know, get getting packages to people's doorsteps at time over all else, including, you know, employee well-being, you know, as I think has been sort of reported amply over the years. And in this case, you know, there there were repercussions. And in many cases, across the businesses, we've seen Amazon, like Facebook and like other tech companies. Build systems and then go back to kind of manage them and address some of the shortcomings.
0: And and sometimes only then when they have had critique, when there's been a disaster, when somebody's gotten hurt. Um, I I, want to go back to the, the beginning of your book where you go into each of these businesses that are sprouted, the origin stories of each of these new categories. And what struck me was just just how um, not just how uh, innovative and, and quickly they were able to grow, but also how a lot of the managers of those businesses ended up in in compromised positions. I mean, you have Roy Price with sexual harassment. Uh, problems and you have the the CEO of Amazon Mexico. You want to tell us what happened with him? Right.
1: <laughs> right. That's gonna require a little bit of explanation. Um so Amazon um was expanding in Mexico uh you know very aggressively. Walmart was there. Um this was a, a new business opportunity that Amazon was moving quickly to to uh, to capture and they hired a, a a local country manager. His name was Juan Carlos Garcia and he basically initiated Amazon's rollout in Mexico. He was actually a former Walmart executive. And that's an interesting story for for a number of reasons, you know, part, partly because Amazon tried to launch in Mexico without Google Ads, you know, they're trying to wean off their dependence on Google. Even Amazon is dependent on Google, which I thought was fascinating. And 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 Garcia was in the middle of that and it, it really ultimately didn't work and they had to turn Google Ads back on. And, and you know Garcia wasn't getting along with his boss, and and ultimately he was dismissed from the company. Uh, and by the way, this was someone who Bezos had interviewed and who the company had chosen to kind of lead their effort into Mexico. And the coda to the story, and Sarah, what I think you're referring to, and which I lay out in the book, is the truly tragic and disturbing story of, of Garcia after he had left Amazon, essentially, and I, I suppose we should throw in the word alleged here, um, but was accused of hiring an assassin to murder his 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 uh, ex-wife. And and then subsequent to that, uh, an arrest warrant was issued and he disappeared across the U.S. border and hasn't been seen since. So, you know, that's, it, you know, it's just a remarkable illustration, I guess, in part of the velocity at which Amazon is moving and some of the personnel decisions over the years, obviously, you know, this being a really extreme example, uh, have been troubling to say the least.
0: Right, most most are not as extreme as that. Of course, it's a very sad story, but but I think that that the pattern we see over and over in the book is that it's grow first, solve the problems later, like you said. And and is that culture being challenged at all? Now, I mean, there is the the antitrust challenge in DC, but within the company, do you see any resistance to that? grow-at-all-cost mentality, or is it celebrated? Is it still the way uh, Amazon works? I
1: think that perhaps there's a recognition now that the company is so big and so visible and so scrutinized that it can't really blunder into opportunities in, in the way that it has. Um, another great example is the international, the global marketplace. So people, they may not even know, that sometimes when they go onto Amazon, they make a purchase. They're not buying from Amazon. They're buying from a third-party seller, And this is a 20-year-old business at Amazon, but they made a decision, um, which I tell the story in the book, to basically turn on that that marketplace to global sellers. And so you had this onslaught of sellers from all around the world, including in China, and, and Amazon embraced the opportunity. They lowered the barriers to entry. They allowed anybody to sign up. You basically just needed a credit card. And what happened, people are probably familiar with this, is you had a flood of counterfeits and fraud. And knockoffs and fake reviews and you know sneakers that self-destructed upon the third wear or jeans whose zippers blew up, you know the fourth time you tried to zip them up, and the you know and 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 most famously hoverboards. Uh, in the I think it was the two thousand and fifteen holiday season when they were fashionable and people were buying them and this one this there were a couple of brands from Chinese sellers that sold on Amazon that caught fire when people plugged them in and were burning people 's houses down and you know it was it was years of bad press and lawsuits that still continue so yeah if you 're asking, is there a change in orientation I think across all the big tech companies now i mean perhaps I'm being a little bit hopeful but this idea that you know you build first and then you ask question you know you answer the questions later and you address the criticism i don't think they really have the luxury to do that anymore
0: well there have to be questions and criticism in order for that to work and i think that one th- thing that i that is so important about reading a book like yours is actually understanding what amazon is in charge of right because when you're buying from that seller you don't think about well did amazon vet these hubber boards to see whether they should be sold isn't there a system happening and what your book reveals is is actually no it's it's kind of all automated in fact um, they prefer not to have humans involved in as many steps as possible of the business a very similar story to, to what i've reported at facebook that just gets in the way of productivity, of efficiency, um and of course humans are very expensive. And so you know, is there a gap in in consumer education with these large tech companies because I feel like like it's very hard to critique something that that you only use as a as a convenience.
1: I think for a lot of customers the the north star is going to be low prices and and reliability and the the anomalous you know the anomalous situations where things go horribly wrong and turn into headlines it's bad for the company but look i mean we can look at amazon's financial numbers and and the and the overall consumer sentiment where obviously it it, it might have hurt its image a little bit but people still flock to the site they like the prices they like the selection they like not having to go to the store so i don't know whether whether these stories have really you know impacted customer adoption The the evidence suggests otherwise, which is sort of depressing. But just on your point, Sarah, I think you you raised a good point. You know, Amazon likes to – I think there's a philosophy there that to build businesses with people and then scale them and run them with automation – and you see you know, so I tell the story of alexa or the or the ghost store, which some people might know. We have a couple of them here in San Francisco are these grocery stores with cameras in the ceiling and sensors in the in the in the shelves that automatically charge you for things and This is a big ten year effort within amazon, and there are plenty of people at the company working on this technology, and you go into the stores and there are plenty of people, but you know clearly, this is all designed to run as as self service and I think that 's where the company gets into trouble because and and we're, you know, other tech companies have gotten into trouble because self-service platforms, they look great financially. They produce so much operating leverage and, and fat profit margins. And yet, you know, what is the internet if not full of people who are trying to hack, you know, automation and platforms, right? It's they they find a way to subvert the attent- intentions of the company.
0: And I think counter to the, the backlash, you saw almost every city in the country, scramble to be considered for Amazon's HQ2 in your book, even if uh, ultimately Jeff Bezos wanted to end up in DC or New York. Um, Tell us a little bit about about what that process looks like behind the scenes.
1: Right, right. And and I, I should say that I had started to research the book when HQ2 started. And so it was this wild, um, you know, this wild story that I hadn't actually planned on when I started to write the book, which was then followed by more wild stories like the National Enquirer battle and, you know, and others. Um, but, you know, HQ2 started with, I think, a feeling among Amazon execs that Seattle was no longer being very hospitable. The political climate had changed. Bezos was also looking at Elon Musk and the and the incentives he had gotten for the Gigafactory in Nevada, Foxconn, you know, which got a, a great incentive package in Wisconsin, Boeing in Washington, and thought, where's mine, right? Where where why why shouldn't we Waltz into into a location and get tax relief. But he's Jeff Bezos, so he's got to do everything bigger and it's got to be unique. And so he conceived the idea for HQ2, which people might remember, um, inviting any region in North America to submit a proposal. And 238 regions did, and they reviewed them all, and they winnowed it down to 20, and then they visited the 20 cities, and they reviewed all those, and then Bezos basically threw it all out. (laughs) The final final, uh, recommendations I report in the book were Philadelphia, Chicago, and Raleigh. And the S team looked at that. And said, you know, things have gotten worse in Seattle, we're growing more quickly than we thought we want, you know, the cost of building cheaply was sounded great. But what we really need is access to talent and proximity to power. And who knows, maybe there was a little bit of where they wanted to go as well. Um, it's hard to say that for certain, but you know, Jeff Bezos does have, does have homes in Washington DC and New York City. And so that's where they went. And the great irony of it was that they were running from one political storm in Seattle and they kind of naively ran into another political storm, a very different one, um, because it really focused more on uh, unions and the, and the battle over whether Amazon would would accede to a union. Uh, in New York City, in Long Island City, and so of course then ignominiously they had to withdraw from from New York.
0: And, and now we have Apple investing in, in Raleigh. and it, I, I think that you know, the work from home era has really changed a lot of this anyway. Um, what you said about proximity to power though is really interesting in context of this evolution that we see of the CEO throughout the book. Um, the fact that he's that he's willing to talk back to Donald Trump, the fact that he's willing to buy the Washington Post, that he that he revels in in um, responding to the National Enquirer. Uh, talk about the evolution of Jeff Bezos, the man, and and how he becomes this larger than life figure. Of uh, throughout this story, does it is it that is that him naturally? Was he always that way, or or is this? Is this a, a new man, um, just really completely changed by his wealth?
1: I quote Jamie Dimon in the in the book saying, you know, he's friends with Bezos and and they collaborated on, on a couple of things, and I quote him as saying, you know, he saw Bezos's eyes gradually open to a larger world. You know, Bezos for many years was totally focused on Amazon. And there are a couple of I think way stations in the book where I describe this transformation, and one of them you you mentioned. Donald Trump is picking on Amazon, picking on The Washington Post. This is 2015, the, the election that he wins. And Bezos wants to wants to respond to Trump on Twitter. And Jay Carney is, is his chief uh, PR guy and a former uh, member of the Obama administration is telling him, don't engage, don't feed the trolls, don't engage with them. And, and Bezos is taking the attack on The Washington Post personally, and he does. Right. Um, and then, you know, fast forward a, about a year and a half. And he is throwing a party for Manchester by the Sea in in Hollywood uh, at his home in B- Beverly Hills. This is one of Amazon Studios movies that won a Golden Globe. And there he is in a tent uh, outside his property, surrounded by stars, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and Casey Affleck and and Bezos is right the brightest star in the in the room, right Attention is ar- is arcing towards him, and so I think that has an impact the the fame, the increase of in wealth, that moment in two thousand and seventeen when he becomes the richest person in the world and so all of the and you know I think what one thing you can pull from this book is that he is in fact human. he is not a robot sent, sent from the future, and all of this naturally has an impact. And he changes and he enjoys the attention and he enjoys the fight and he enjoys the world stage. And then of course there's a, a a change in his personal life. And I think in part because of his his partner, Lauren Sanchez, he begins to really enjoy the trappings of extravagant wealth. I report in the book that he is building this fantastic three mast schooner sailing yacht. You know, it'll be one of the largest, if not the largest, in the world. It's like four hundred and
0: seventeen incon- feet. Something it's inconce
1: like yeah, it's inconceivable that Jeff Bezos circa 2010, where I start this book, would have would have been constructing a yacht. I, I don't think he simply his time was too valuable, he was too focused on the company, and yet this is Bezos today, the richest person in the world. So that is the transformation, and it's, you know it's an interesting one. I think it, it says a lot about human nature and a lot about the impact that that extraordinary wealth and attention can have.
0: What's his vulnerability? I mean, he seems to be a master of the universe. Does he have any weaknesses?
1: I mean, I, I think that what, when you become that wealthy and you move wholly into the orbit of other elites, your feet leave the ground a little bit, and you probably lose touch with the the, the needs and the demands, the desires of of the the common person or who what they would call the customer. So I tell a couple of stories in this book right alongside the extreme success of some real misfires. And the Fire Phone was the famous one where Bezos conceived a smartphone that nobody wanted. But there are some other hilarious examples, like he has his grocery team create what they called a single cow burger, a burger made from the meat of just one cow, because he reads that a normal hamburger is made from the meat of hundreds of cows. And he is certain that only Amazon can do this really, you know, premium product and that everyone will want it. And he micromanages the effort. He actually insists on sampling the first burger and then sends it back essentially because it's too fatty and the packaging isn't quite right. And they produce another one. And it obviously hasn't been a game changer, but I think that's a weakness, you know, that he's become, He's become so you know, wealthy that he's perhaps lost a little bit of touch with what customers want. And then of course, he's got so many other demands on his time right now. And obviously a big requirement to give away some of this $200 billion fortune and that's dividing his attention right now. So if you're asking about a business weakness, I think it's just surely the number of things that are on his plate right now.
0: Soon to be less on his plate, right? I mean, Andy Jassy, is going to take over as CEO later this year. Um, He's still going to remain executive chairman. Do you think he's going to micromanage Amazon as much? Um, or How do you see the the company evolving? And by the way, everyone, remember to put your questions into the YouTube chat, and we'll get to them very shortly.
1: I think the the, the arc of the story that I'm telling in the book is Bezos drifting away from the company. And there are some very conspicuous deviations from that. I tell the story in 2017 as he returns— with force to make sure that the retail business is profitable and not depending on advertising. And in 2020, he returns and devotes his attention to navigating the pandemic. But by and large, throughout that time period, he is letting his deputies run the business and largely focusing on the new projects like Alexa and also the Washington Post and Blue Origin, the space company, and all all of his other responsibilities. And so I actually think that that continues and the arc of his his um, pulling away from the company continues. He he's, he says he'll be involved in new projects. He's executive chairman. I I assume that in the annual the biggest annual uh, operating reviews he'll continue to be a loud voice in the conference room. But I think we're going to see this is a guess in a couple of years he'll drop executive from 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 his title. He'll be, he'll just be chairman, and we're going to continue to see him pull back. And he's going to let. Andy Jassy run that company. I mean, Jassy has been an extraordinary, successful leader uh, of the AWS business. That's a $50 billion a year business in just 15 years, and has earned the right and probably could get another CEO job. So I think Bezos will give him a little bit of runway, unless, of course, he really screws up. And then who knows? We'll see. We might see Jeff return.
0: Yeah, but Jassy has been been running one business pretty much this whole time. And then Amazon, as you describe, is just so vast and in so many different things. Um, talk a little bit about MGM. That's a question we have with uh, from one of our listeners here. Where does the possible MGM acquisition fit with the Bezos ethos, and do you see a fit with Amazon?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, Amazon has been gradually moving into streaming, you know, for for ten years. It's the everything store, of course. So DVDs were once an important shelf in that store and those sales declined. So Amazon moved into video on demand where you could buy a movie or TV show and Netflix disrupted that. So they moved into subscription video on demand, but they integrated it into Prime. So it was free for Prime members. And then what happened was it was simply really expensive to go and license content from, you know, a studio or a network. So Amazon, like Netflix, decided, well, they'll make their own stuff. Right. And that proved to be really hard. And Amazon's still kind of getting the swing of it. They don't have a massive Game of Thrones style hit. So MGM does two things. One, it brings all these franchises into the Amazon fold. James Bond. um, uh, There's the Hobbit franchise. There's Survivor, all all sorts of uh, content. Um, I'm forgetting some really some really big. I think ones, of but, like
0: the Wizard of Oz, right? Isn't that MGM? yeah? That's like, right. A huge so like, vault. The, the Americana, of right. What MGM has created
1: exactly. Since the beginning the, of movies. The Rocky franchise is what is one oh, that yeah. I'm forgetting. Right? Okay, so suddenly they've got a big studio and all sorts of franchise potential, and that it will nur- nourish Prime Video. But then they've got this massive vault of older movies and TV shows. I think something like 70,000 hours of television programming. And they can add that to the, to the catalog of, archive material and prime video, but also to IMDb TV, which some people might not know about, but there's another streaming network that's free for everyone and it's advertising supported. Now, advertising is one of the biggest and fastest growing businesses at Amazon. It's a, a little gold mine that they have in their backyard that they've only recently discovered. I, and I tell that story in the book. But the ability to run commercials in all that material is going to boost Amazon's ad business as they go out and acquire NFL games and baseball games and premier league soccer and suddenly amazon's going to have a robust advertising business
0: what's so funny about amazon's moving to the advertising is when i speak with advertisers they say we're so glad to have an alternative to facebook and google who are so dominant but amazon of course starts out that way and then becomes becomes quite dominant well but um, it's,
1: the, the great point there sarah just really quickly is yeah, we talk so much about monopoly in tech. And really, frankly, it's more like oligopoly, right? It's We have six companies that are absolutely dominating the landscape and are competing on the margins, but together are kind of carving up the economic pie.
0: Well, that's a perfect segue to this next question we have from one of our listeners, wondering if Amazon can actually be threatened by uh, today's announcement from the the D.C. Attorney General, which we spoke about a little earlier, they're they're saying that Amazon is fixing prices in their favor. Uh, this is one of the first, le- or if not the first, antitrust legal challenge versus Amazon. Does it have teeth?
1: I, yeah, um, I, I actually think it's a challenging case, and I'd, we just have to give a little bit of explanation. So what the the D.C. A.G. is saying is, you know, this most favored nation clause that Amazon Amazon's basically telling sellers you can't sell more cheaply elsewhere and if you do but it's very subtle and opaque they kind of disappear you from search results or suddenly as a seller you don't get the so-called buy box um the the dcag is saying that's anti-competitive well i look i mean if he's able to prove his case amazon can simply stop doing it right and I, i don't necessarily think that um injures the company all that much um i they've they've had to walk away from a version of it already in europe so I don't think this constitutes an existential threat. What it does, what it does represent, is the kind of whistle to 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 start the race. And I think we're going to see other cases from the FTC and from AGs in New York and and um, California that are looking at probably more impactful things like the the conduct of Amazon with regard to its private label business and the relationship between the different business units like AWS and retail.
0: Jeff Bezos was up there with. The other big uh, CEOs in tech testifying about Amazon's power. Amazon was included in the uh, congressional report on antitrust as one of the, the tech monopolies that has become equivalent to uh, oil barons and, and railroad tycoons of days past. Um, it, as you see, you said it's, it's more of an oligopoly, these companies are all competing with each other. Uh, do you think that that this is sustainable? Uh, could they just keep growing?
1: Well, they certainly will keep growing, right? I I, I view Amazon as a boulder rolling downhill, and it's it's momentum shows no
0: everything.
1: yeah it shows no sign of slowing. I mean, just here in the Bay Area, more fulfillment centers closer to the major cities, faster delivery, more trucks and vans on the road, making it more convenient to order and less you know less need to actually go to a store. But the one the one drawback of that kind of scale and growth is, you know, you're serving a lot of different customers and a lot of different constituencies, and it does open up. Pockets where the company isn't paying enough attention or can't please everyone and there's a great example of a Canadian company called Shopify That's one of the most extraordinary growth stories on the internet today And they've managed to kind of cut into Amazon's dominance in part by really focusing on brands that want to control their experience with their customer They don't want to go through Amazon and Shopify allows them to do it and it helps them administer their website and deliver their packages and they've built a great business and so it doesn't mean that amazon's any less dominant what it what it means is it's that much harder for a regulator or a lawmaker or a state ag to go and bring a case and say that amazon's snuffing out competition it's like facebook with tiktok right there are this is the nature of the internet there's sort of always a, a new thing and it can be sometimes really inconvenient for a, a regulator or a lawmaker who's trying to bring a case to say that these companies have a hammer lock on the customer or snuff out competition because there is there is competition.
0: Right. It's it's just the the paranoia that drives these men at the top, uh, just that they one day will become irrelevant to their customers and, and someone else will come in and do it better. Um, I, I love this this next question. Uh, this reader is referring back, or the listener is referring back to the review you got from Mackenzie Bezos for the Everything Store. I believe it was a, a one-star review uh, saying that she felt many of the things in the book were inaccurate, including one of the books that, that Jeff read at a certain time. Um, bring us into... Amazon and and Jeff Bezos' response to this book. Have you had any feedback yet? Ha- have you heard um, any rumblings of discontent or or approval for the accuracy? What have you heard?
1: I, I think maybe they learned their lesson a little bit from the, the from their reaction to the Everything Store. So yeah, people might remember uh, that that it was not only Mackenzie Bezos at the time, but but Andy Jassy and other Amazon executives who left one star reviews. And they just thought it was an unfairly negative depiction of their culture and the, uh, the you know, calling the the other Amazon executive Jeff Botts, Um There were a lot of things there they didn't appreciate. And the reviews had the perverse impact of drawing more attention to the book, for which I was, of course, greatly appreciative back then. And so, look, I mean, there hasn't been any similar response, uh, probably smartly on their part. I'm really proud of the book. Uh, Tons of Amazon executives, current and former, have reached out to say that this really captured the achievements, the chaos, and the oversights of the the last 10 years. Again, in some ways, even a better story, certainly a more difficult story to tell because everything is sort of happening at the same time. And yeah, I I think that um, look, you're you're never going to get it exactly right when you talk about these big, secretive, opaque companies that really are difficult, to, as you know, Sarah. They're they're difficult to penetrate. But luckily, I think with with Amazon, it's now a 26 year old company, and there are many employees across all the business units that feel like you know what they saw is a, is a story that's really deeply worth telling and important to understanding if we're going to ever contend with these big companies.
0: Give us a sense of what it takes to get behind the scenes of a company like Amazon. What did your reporting look like? How did you, how did you manage to do it? I, I, as I was reading, I just thought, Oh my God, how does, I didn't even find that out. Um,
1: Well, Sarah, we worked together. We, we worked together at Bloomberg. So surely pre pandemic, you saw my anguish in the, in the office. Uh, It was just, it's just a sheer, it's just sheer volume of outreach and, um, you know, reaching out and meeting with as many people as you can. Yeah, certainly I had the calling card of the first book, The Everything Store. And and also I should say that Amazon worked with me to an extent on this book. They allowed me to talk to, I think, around 15 executives, mostly members of the senior leadership team, the S team, and so I got good access but it was also that foundation of employees who were still there and talking on background or who had left and were willing to share their stories. And look some of them were were favorable. There are you know, a lot of people that take a lot of pride in their accomplishments at Amazon. And some of them were mixed and some of them were quite negative. I talked to the 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 manager who who ran the first Prime Day? So Prime Day is coming up next month, and this was the 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 woman who ran Prime Day. I think it was 2015, and it was a whirlwind. And she, you know, she worked tirelessly. And then after she ran Prime Day, she had another couple of jobs at Amazon. And then at, at some point, she realized she was using Amazon style leadership principles on her mother, and she had this epiphany that the company and the culture had made her kind of made her kind of mean. And she reflected on it and wondered. You know, did she really admire the company and, and was Bezos someone she admired? And she ended up leaving the company, canceling her Pride membership and and recycling her, her Amazon Echoes. So that's one example. And there's a variety of testimony in this book, but it's 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 just simply, you know, finding people like that who are willing to share their stories.
0: And are people scared to share their stories inside Amazon? Is it a very secretive company?
1: I would imagine it's it's a lot like what you encountered at Facebook. It's a it's a range of people. Technically they're not supposed to talk to us, right? They sign non-disclosure agreements. And yet those are somewhat toothless I I think in California and and I think also a lot of people realize that there's a a story to tell there. And if, you know, they trust the journalist and they're comfortable and they realize this is that this business history is just history now, period. These companies, Facebook and Amazon, are, have molded our re- economic reality and changed the way we live and impacted our political systems. So I do think a lot of employees and executives feel a responsibility to tell the story and to make sure that it's told correctly.
0: Yeah, I, I felt that too, that there is this hope that if there is a book about a company, that it will be accurate and that it will, will have the varied perspectives and and you get all of those those into the mix and end up with something that, that is as close to the truth as anyone's going to get. And I think
1: it's important not to approach it. I think, I think there's a comfort level when uh, a journalist doesn't approach it as a critic, who's building a case, nor as a hagiographer, who's simply gathering the recollections of, of the top executive, but you're trying to get in there and tell the story and, and, and there are elements that are positive and there are elements that are negative. You know, the first third of the book I, I call part one invention because it really is the story of Amazon creating things that made a meaningful impact on people's lives. And that's just not, not only Alexa, but bringing e-commerce into India and all the money that Amazon invested there to, to allow, you know, pe- people to get, giving people access to, to products that they otherwise couldn't buy. And then some of the ramifications of that, of you as, as, you know, in India, they had a real political backlash because prime minister Modi was, you know, protecting the small mom and pop merchants who are a big part of this political coalition.
0: What do you hope consumers take away from your book? The people who use Amazon products every day or um, maybe stream Amazon Prime video or use their Amazon Alexa, who you revealed the the name of the voice actor for uh, when they read your book, what do you hope they learn?
1: Well, first of all, like any author, I want people to feel like they read a great story, right? And that's what this is. It's a story of amazing accomplishment and a story of interesting people and a story of transformation, a story that everyone – of a person who everyone knows who has really changed right before our eyes – and 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 they take things from that um they i think I think what's important is that they understand the complexity of amazon that there's a better sense for how this company that really defies description now, how all the pieces interlock, how they how they got there, how they how they built it and and then t- starts to understand in a real way amazon's complex power right It's too easy to say that Amazon controls a customer because this is the internet, and competition is is only as far away as another browser window right? We can go to Walmart and find a lot of the same stuff or find it via Google search. So it's the the arguments against Amazon need to acknowledge that complexity and be very specific. When I hear critics talking about Amazon's monopoly power, and these are people who talked about Walmart for 10 years, and Walmart isn't even a part of their vocabulary anymore, I feel like they're not really contending with the the fact set, right? The real complicated facts and reality of Amazon. So I hope it's a better understanding of how the company operates and what that market power, and in some cases, maybe even that anti-competitive market power over private label products, the way they use seller data, the way they you know, limit the ability of sellers to, to file lawsuits against them, all the tools that Amazon has in its arsenal, the way they, as we talk, build businesses without a lot of uh, thought into some of the negative negative repercussions. I, I would like people to have a greater appreciation for that.
0: Wait, just the grow at all cost strategy, this domination. Um, one one listener commented that if people were as concerned with if people were concerned with Google as much as Amazon, we'd be better off. I mean, do you think that there's a company that deserves more scrutiny than Amazon, or or do you think that the the giants here, Amazon. Apple, Google, Facebook, are are about, they're similar in their tactics and they deserve similar scrutiny.
1: Yeah, here's the challenge. We have these big companies in our midst. I would put Microsoft right up there. They all have different business models. They all deserve scrutiny. They're bigger corporate entities than we've seen in, in history, perhaps, certainly recent history. And yet all the issues for each one are distinctive. The markets are different. The extent of their market power is different. Their tactics are different. And the problem is that our underfunded antitrust and regulatory authorities only have so much attention span and firepower to really understand them. And then in Congress, these CEOs are often lopped together in these theatrical, uh, you know, these these very theatrical and over the top test- days of day long days long testimonies you've you've had to listen to a we lot really of them. You don't learn much. Yeah. You don't learn much. Every congressperson's just simply making their statement, and then you have one of our major political parties that's turning it uh, into a complete sideshow, accusing the social networks of suppressing conservative speech, which has nothing to do with so called anti competitive tactics tactics by the major tech companies. So the challenge is they all deserve scrutiny. The issues are totally different. And we have really lawmakers that are, I think, in with some rare exceptions are kind of incapable of really getting down into the into the real issues.
0: Yeah, there was a, a question here as to whether um, Jeff is more of an evil genius Lex Luthor personality as he more of an Iron Man hero. If you could could choose between the two.
1: Right. I mean, those are obviously fictional construction, so I'm not sure they're, they're, they're really useful on this. Uh, let's let me, tr- let me try it though. On the spectrum of Lex Luthor to Iron Man. I don't, it doesn't really work because he's, I don't, I don't see him as a, a Tony Stark getting into the, in the, he has put himself in the, in a, in a robotic suit at one of his robot events and, and, you know, gleefully cackled as he was operating it in front of the clicking press cameras i was going to say lex Luthor. my recollection is he wanted to send nuclear missiles to blow up california Um, i don't see bezos as 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 finding that tactic all that valuable so i'm going to say he's slightly leaning towards the tony stark side of the spectrum
0: well, Tony Stark, uh, in, inspired in part by Elon Musk, another person asked, what is Elon Musk's relationship with Jeff? Is, are they friendly or are they competitive?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, that's a great question. And actually, there's a chapter in the book devoted to that. They they were friendly. They met a lot about 20 years ago to talk about their shared space dreams. But what's happened is SpaceX has completely outpaced uh, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin. And a lot of things that Bezos did with Blue Origin early on, I think, proved to be kind of unhelpful. He wanted to explain Blue
0: Origin for those who who don't know.
1: Great. So Blue Origin is Bezos's private space company. He funds it. He has some of the same dreams as Elon with SpaceX. He is in the next few months. He will be sending people to suborbital space in a in a rocket called New Shepard. He also is building an orbital rocket called New Glenn. And Blue Origin is bidding for a lot of the contracts, like a a NASA contract to go back to the moon, that SpaceX has ended up winning. And as SpaceX has kind of outpaced Blue Origin and won a lot of these contracts, Blue Origin has sued the government to try to force it to reevaluate some of these decisions. And Elon has started to, as Elon does, sort of snippily tweet at Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin, so the, there is a rivalry. It is alive and well. It is hugely entertaining to watch. Um, I, I think. Look, these are two of now. I think the three richest people in the world, and there's no shortage of ego on either side. And so I think this is a, a you know was a friendship. It's now much more of a rivalry, and it will be interesting to continue to see it evolve. Particularly because Bezos is usually not second place in in anything, right? I mean, that is part of the fuel that has powered Amazon. But he is very clearly second place when it comes to space exploration. In fact, everyone at SpaceX has really outpaced everyone and its achievements have been spectacular. So it'll be interesting if Bezos, as he retires as CEO of Amazon, starts to spend more time at Blue Origin, because I do think that is a company with a bit of a dysfunctional culture that either needs him to fully invest in it and spend a lot of time in it, or even you know, maybe detached completely, because he sort of quasi operated it from a distance and that has seeded uh, a lot of dysfunction at it.
0: Yeah, I, I think uh, it's also interesting how motivated he is by those tax cuts. Uh, just like he's, he's uh, very afraid of unions, he's very excited about any government tax cuts. Um, we, as we wrap up here, somebody asked, is Jeff Bezos a role model for kids? Or for entrepreneurs,
1: I think so. You know, generally, he he's someone who you know was a vice president on Wall Street who who risked everything with an idea to build a business and changed, you know, life around the world. Um, has has disrupted not just retail but cloud computing, uh, ebook reading, voice computing. there's plenty of reasons to to criticize him and Amazon. And I, and I do in this book and we have in this conversation, you know, but I do generally think that the guy has, you know, is, is a classic American inventor and innovator and business builder. And look, this is a country that does celebrate that kind of success. And I think that's, it's, that's motivating. It's motivating for kids to know that you, with an idea, you can change the world. And so I I do think he's a a role model. I think that a lot might depend on the the next stage of his career. He has a $200 billion fortune. He was late in initiating major philanthropy. He has now started to address that with a $10 billion Bezos Earth Fund to try to address one of the greatest challenges to, to humanity. Right or, or climate change, and I want to be optimistic about that. I want to say that the guy with the the biggest fortune and the greatest intellect can go and, if he really focuses on it, can make a big impact. So, depending on what he does there, and if the Bezos Earth Fund does allow us to kind of move the needle on climate change, I think that would be an extraordinary legacy, and I think for sure that that uh, kids should celebrate it.
0: But he needs to he needs to live up to that. He needs to keep focusing on the the aftermath of all this wealth creation um, in your opinion
1: no I, I think that's one way in which we we measure the legacy of of the great business magnets right is how they not just how they aggregate the fortunes but how they give them away and that's you know how we how we remember a lot of the you know the the magnets of the late 1800s right by the Carnegie and Rockefeller by their philanthropic legacies and Gates understood that you know, 20 years ago, and of course, his legacy is being reevaluated somewhat as he encounters some personal turbulence. But Bezos was so focused on Amazon that I think maybe was a little late to it. He's someone who I think is, is sensitive to criticism, uh, maybe a little too late, but he does acknowledge it. And then he tries to kind of lead with his chin and react to it. And we saw that with uh, the climate criticism of Amazon. And we've seen it with the relationship with workers. You know, in the last investor letter, maybe his last one ever, Bezos said he wanted to focus on reevaluating and improving Amazon's relationship with customers. And that's after 10, 10 years of, sorry, with employees. And that's after 10 years of criticism of the way that Amazon treats its workers. So I think he, you know, he's he's probably a little bit in the legacy contemplation period of his career right now. And so we've seen him be a little bit more receptive. To the criticism,
0: and, and then I have, I think we have just one more uh, question here. Is shopping in Amazon good for society, or does the cost or externalities of low prices have uh, sabotaging effects where people will suffer, hurt workers? As you mentioned, you know how Amazon treats workers uh, has become a, a big topic of conversation publicly lately. We've heard stories of drivers peeing in bottles because they just simply don't have time to make a bathroom stop. Uh, Should, should we be shopping at Amazon?
1: I I think it's too simplistic to say that shopping on Amazon hurts, hurts the world. Amazon is a, is a job creator, you know, creates economic opportunity in in parts of the country where it's lacking is offering a competitive wage. I mean, again, these are things that I want to give it it credit for um, that I'm not just a full fledged critic of, of the company. Um, at, at the same time, there's plenty of ways we've discussed many of them uh, in this in this talk for it to improve the way it treats its workers uh, to create some curbs on the, the the kinds of sellers who can exploit its, its global marketplace. you know as Amazon I think sort of maybe addresses some of the unintended consequences of its of its growth, you know and and particularly addresses its climate impact, and of course, they've put in this massive order for electric vans. I think it could be an incredible source of, of, of positive uh, impact on, on the world. But look, I mean, that's why I wrote this book, and that's why we write about this company at Bloomberg, and that's why the scrutiny is good, because it's not it's not that clear-cut. And we need to continue to pressure the company that we know is listening now to continue to uh, improve its conduct.
0: Absolutely. Do you think that in the coming years, there will be a third Amazon book by you, or are you... Exhausted at this point.
1: I'm definitely exhausted, but I'll I'll say this, Sarah. Um, I never thought I would be writing Amazon Unbound, and the reason I did was because it was an extraordinary story, and you know, and, and and great business stories that are part of history, you know, should have written accounts. If in ten years, I don't I don't expect that this will be true, but if in ten years, Bezos has, has pulled off a, a yet another act, and Amazon is is not just a 1.6 trillion dollar company, but is you know, a $5 trillion company or or the government has made some inroads into curbing its power, then certainly somebody should write that book. Um, you know, I think of this book as The Empire Strikes Back, which, you know, does suggest that there's a return of the Jedi. But we'll have to have this conversation again in 10 years, because right now, it's hard, it's hard to see what that story is.
0: Brad, I, I hope we are still talking about books in 10 years. That, that's an amazing thing to look forward to. Um, and I... Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today's program with Brad Stone. I want to thank him and, of course, thank the Commonwealth Club, our host of today's program. And if you have not done so already, be sure to purchase Brad's book, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire, wherever books are sold. And the club will soon be posting this video on its website at www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Sarah Fryer of Bloomberg, and this special virtual education program of the commonwealth club is concluded
1: you've been listening to the commonwealth club of california
0: hear thousands of our podcasts on apple podcasts google play and stitcher
1: if you like what you've heard please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org donate